what's going on, everybody. Thanks for tuning back to the Almanac here on 93.3 CFMU, where every Thursday, 12 to 12.30, we interview a McMaster graduate student. We talk about their research. We talk about non-research related things. We talk about their graduate student journey. So hopefully to all of you who are listening, it is helpful. And you, of course, gain some insight about some of the spectacular research that is happening here at McMaster University. I am your host, Severa West, and I'm a PhD student here at Mac. But you know what? That's enough about me. I would like to introduce our guest for today, Kevin Zhao, who is a first-year PhD student in the Department of Medicine under the Faculty of Health Sciences. How are things going today, Kevin? They're going great. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm really happy uh, to have you here. Again, it's always such a pleasure to have a live guest. So uh, thank you to you. Well, well, uh, again, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Excited to see how this goes. Yeah. Yeah. So, Kevin, uh, usually I, you know, I contact, I usually cold email my uh, guests, but you and I have met previously through the MD-PhD program. Yes, we have. So, I am actually wondering if you can talk a little bit about your journey to maybe medicine, uh, research, and then how you merge these two interests by pursuing the MD-PhD program. Yeah, absolutely. So, I've always had an interest in medicine, I think. Um Right out of high school, um, like my high school program was structured such that we had to choose physics or biology, um, and I opted for biology, obviously with an eye towards um, human health. And so I applied for uh, the health sciences program at McMaster, and I was lucky enough to get into medicine um, after my third year. So uh, good luck on a lot of fronts, I think. But um, after getting into medicine, uh, doing a year of undergraduate uh, medical studies, um, you know, I, I felt like I really missed research. Uh, I had, a like, again, a, a really uh, good break of good luck in my undergraduate. I had a really good research uh, mentor, uh, Dr. Alexander Hines. I hope it's okay if I shout out. Um, he was a fantastic PI. He really cultured my interest in uh, research. And uh, I guess insidiously planted the research bug in me such that, like, after entering medicine, I, I really felt like um, being away from the bench, I was really... Uh, missing something in my life. So that led me to apply to the MD-PhD program here at Mac. And I was, again, lucky enough to get in. And here I am in my first year of PhD studies uh, in immunology. And I really like the the nod that you're giving to luck because mm-hmm. I think a lot of us only, at least for me, at least when I look back, I kind of recognize and appreciate the amount of serendipity there was involved in my own graduate student journey. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think like looking back from the outside, it can seem like everything's planned and you know, you're just so talented, but really there's a lot of dice rolls that, uh, you know, happen to land high for you and things happen to work out. Um, there, there's a, a major aspect of luck, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I like to acknowledge that, um, you know, if it, if it works out, you're lucky. Sometimes if it doesn't work out, it's not because of anything you did, right? Yeah, I think that's so important to mention, especially now kind of around during uh, grad school application season slash Mm. interview season for some professional schools. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it can be difficult for some students, but just uh, remember it's often very little to do with you and just everything with how academia and the medical education is uh, structured. Yeah. Well, uh, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit about this research that you're now doing in this MD-PhD program? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was interested in studying aging, right? I, I think uh, it'll be no surprise to your listeners that uh, the population in Canada is aging. It's true worldwide. Life expectancy is increasing, and that, that's fantastic. But it does mean that um, we'll have a lot more complex health issues to deal with in the healthcare system as we move forward, as people uh, live into older age, um, have more complex medical conditions. Um, so I think there's a massive uh, need for uh, like biomedical research specific to the needs of uh, 
you know, those who are older in age. Um, so that was the area of research that I really wanted to work in. And my undergraduate experiences were in microbiology, but I wanted to move in a more uh, like human relevant uh, direction. So I thought immunology was a very natural uh, step forward. And so uh, I was recommended to apply to Dr. Don Bowdish's lab um, by my old PI actually. Um, because of my interest in aging. And so uh, this really is the ideal intersection of my two interest areas of aging and immunology. So what we study in uh, the Bowdish lab is the immunology of aging, right? How uh, the immune system changes as we age and how that impacts uh, the health of older adults and their ability to defend against infections. And you specifically look at lung infections. Yes, yes. Uh, I'm specifically interested in uh, bacterial pneumonia. Um, so, uh, you know, you might not hear about it too much because younger folks don't tend to get it that much, but it's quite common among older adults. It's one of the top uh, 10 causes of death in those age 65 and older. Um, and really, like, you'd like to think that this is something we'd conquered. Um, it's, you know, a, an infectious disease. It's, it seems like something from the 20th century, but um, I, I think that sort of goes to indicate that the immune systems of older adults really are, are quite different from um, those who are uh, younger, right? Um, so, you know, I think it sort of highlights to me at least how profound the changes are in the immune system as we age. So if we can take a step back, mm -hmm. how does the immune system change as we age? Yeah, so uh, that, that's quite a large question. That, that's a huge field of study, but, um, you know, there's this whole field called immunosenescence, which is the study of the age-related changes in the immune system. Um, so I'm specifically looking at a type of cell called a macrophage, um, which is... Um, a part of what we call the innate immune system. It's the sort of first-line defenders when a pathogen tries to invade your system. Um, so, you know, in the innate immune system, there are a lot of interesting age-related changes. Um, you know, in many ways, the immune system gets worse at defending against infectors, uh, or sorry, uh, invaders. So like macrophages, uh, normally they'll sort of eat up uh, bacteria that try to get into your system and they'll destroy them. Um, I'm specifically interested in how that uh, process is impaired with age. So we know that macrophages get worse at uh, killing bacteria uh, as they get older, right? Um, there are other interesting things that occur with age, uh, like our adaptive immune system, which produces antibodies, which you might know about through this pandemic. Um, it gets a lot worse at uh, producing novel antibodies, recognizing new, new pathogens. It tends to get, um, if you want to think about it this way, sluggish in its response. Um, and there's a general shift towards uh, the innate immune system. So you're immune system gets less uh, dynamic, right? Um, so those are some of the changes that occur with age. There are a lot more. Um, but I think, I hope that to your listener at least um, sort of highlights how complex these changes are, right? You could spend a lifetime studying the changes that occur in the immune system with age and not get to the bottom of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with these macrophages, mm -hmm. if, if as we age, they get uh, worse at trying to eat up these pathogens, mm -hmm. how are you trying to study that? Like, how are you studying the function of these macrophages? Yeah, so uh, we know specifically that there's this uh, molecule in our bodies called TNF. It's like a, it's called a cytokine, which is just an immune system hormone. You can think of it that way. Um, with age, we know that its levels increase. Mm -hmm. um, and so normally... Uh, you know, we produce this molecule in the context of infection, right? It, it uh, induces inflammation. So it causes like swelling um, at the site of infections, um, recruits other immune cells to the site of infections. But as we age, the levels of uh, TNF in our bodies tends to increase throughout our bodies and not in response to any obvious infection. So that's obviously kind of a problem. That's not a normal reaction. 
Um, and so uh, what we think is happening is that uh, these higher levels of TNF at uh, baseline without uh, exposure to infection or any reason to have this uh, molecule, um, it's uh, sort of, uh, you know, impairing the ability of these macrophages to respond, right? It's sort of getting them used to TNF so that when there's actually a large increase in the amount of TNF, produced in response to an infection, these macrophages are no longer sensitive. So I'm specifically looking at some of the pathways within the cell, um, but that's the broad strokes. We think that uh, higher levels of TNF that are uh, present in older adults are sort of uh, making these macrophages insensitive to TNF signaling. Interesting. And is it just um, uh, becoming more susceptible to lung infections because of this decreased function of the macrophages, or might TNF be associated with other sorts of uh, conditions as well in older adults. Yeah, so uh, we're specifically studying lung infections because that's what our lab's expertise is in. But, uh, you know, I, I think it's very possible that um, lots of other macrophages in other uh, settings uh, are also impaired by higher levels of TNF. Um, you know, macrophages are found in tissues throughout the body. They're present in the lungs, the liver, the colon, the skin. They're, they're everywhere, right? They're present in the brain. Um, so, you know, if we do prove that TNF is uh, able to impair macrophage function in the lungs, and we can clearly break down how exactly it does that. Uh, I think that really pushes the field forward and, uh, you know, opens the door to generalization to other tissues, right? Um, another reason we're focusing on lung infections is because I'm sure, again, everyone knows through the past pandemic, uh, the lung is sort of uh, not only a, a major site of infection, but it's a major site of infection in um, older adults, mm -hmm. right? Um, so there's, I think, an especially strong uh, clinical justification for studying the lung. Mm -hmm. And Kevin, I'm also curious how exactly you're going to be studying the mm -hmm. impact of TNF on macrophage function. Are you going to be drawing blood from older adults and examining the, the TNF levels there um, and then correlating with macrophage function? Or how are you going about it? Uh, yeah, so uh, we're studying a mouse model, which okay. I, I want to recognize is a major limitation of a lot of basic biomedical research. Uh, I myself am a bench scientist, so, uh, you know, a lot of uh, cell work, a lot of uh, basic molecular biology, so that's just working with like DNA, proteins, uh, the fundamental building blocks of life, um, and mouse models, right, um, to try and bring things back to the context of a living organism. Um, of course, mice are not humans. Uh, they're a lot smaller, and there are a lot of other major differences. Um, but to try and address these, uh, our lab has extensive collaborations with other labs, so uh, I think we're actually fortunate enough to uh, have ac acquired some bone marrow samples um, from rheumatoid arthritis patients uh, before and after uh, what's called anti-TNF therapy. Um, so you might know that rheumatoid arthritis patients uh, sometimes uh, have TNF blocked uh, throughout their system to try and address their uh, disease. And so that works the dual purpose of addressing their disease. And in our case, um, it's a pseudo-experimental system where we can see what happens to bone marrow before and after blocking TNF. Fascinating. Interesting. Um, and I'm curious, in these mice models, how mm -hmm. do you define an old mouse? Yeah, so an old mouse, I believe, is typically defined as uh, greater than 18 months, which, uh, you know, mice, if, if a mouse makes it to like two years, like that's a pretty lucky mouse. Mm. Um, so 18 months is a reasonably old mouse. Um, yeah, and we'll typically define a young mouse as less than one year. Um, yeah. Differences from humans, right? right. Um, but of course, that's what makes the model useful, is, is that we don't have to wait 
you know, 20 or 40 or 60 years for uh, the animal to be considered old for us to actually study interesting things that are happening. Um, we can wait about a year and a half and we can get to work, right? Right, right. And it's it's a, a building block, as you mentioned as well. Absolutely. Um, to potentially uh, studying humans as well. Mm-hmm. So if I can also dig a little bit deeper, because I'm really interested, I guess, sure. in terms of how your experiments would play out. So, mm-hmm. for instance, would you... First, maybe assess the levels of TNF in an old mouse compared to a young mouse and then see if, A, they do differ in mice. And then maybe go on to uh, inject a mouse with high levels of TNF and see sure. how that impairs macrophage function. How, how would experiments play out here? It's actually really interesting. Um, so we have mice that have their gene for TNF knocked out. So they don't produce any TNF uh, within oh. their own bodies. Um, but they still have the receptors for TNF. So we can still stimulate them with TNF if we inject them or if we isolate cells from them and expose them to TNF. Um, But throughout their lifetimes, as they age, they don't have the age-related increase in TNF that we, you know, see in wild-type mice, in mice that don't have their gene for TNF knocked out. So uh, by comparing, uh, you know, mice that have their TNF gene as they age with mice that lack their TNF gene as they age, we can begin to decipher the role of TNF in aging. Interesting, interesting. And I think you also mentioned that you are looking at also some drug targets. Yes, yes. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm specifically looking at some of the intracellular pathways um, through which we think TNF is impairing the ability of macrophages to kill bacteria once they've uptaken them. Um, So we think that it does so through uh, these specific molecules within the cells that there currently exist pharmaceuticals, um, I don't believe are FDA licensed, but are at least non-toxic in mice, um, that we can uh, use to try and uh, correct any age-related changes to try and improve the ability of these macrophages to kill uh, bacteria. So uh, again, this is still like basic biomedical research. We're trying to lay the groundwork, but we have some at least early candidates for um, potential pharmaceuticals. I'm hedging a lot because I don't want to you know, scientists, I think, never want to present things too conclusively. Um, but yeah, we have some early candidates for, uh, you know, addressing the age-related impairments in macrophage function. Mm-hmm. I'm also a little bit curious about this because you mentioned at the beginning that you were interested in, you're specifically mm-hmm. interested in bacterial pneumonia. Yes. So currently, do treatments exist for bacterial, bacterial pneumonia, like antibiotics? Yeah. So currently, uh, Treatments for bacterial pneumonia are basically just antibiotics. Um, There's some supportive care that goes on, but, um, you know, antibiotics are our mainstay treatment. Um, And that's kind of a problem for two reasons, right? First off, we know that, um, you know, this thing called antibiotic-resistant bacteria is happening, where bacteria will gradually learn to adapt to uh, antibiotics you throw at them, right? They may develop a mutation to circumvent uh, some antibiotic, and suddenly the one tool you have in your arsenal doesn't work. Another problem with uh, antibiotics being our only treatment is that, uh, you know, we use it for all our patients. We have one tool, right? So, you know, an old patient comes to your clinic and has bacterial pneumonia, you're giving them antibiotics. If a young patient comes to your clinic, it's the same thing. But we know that older patients have uh, very different uh, interactions with bacterial pneumonia. They're much more likely to get it. Uh, They're much more likely to die after they get it. Mm -hmm. And even if they recover from bacterial pneumonia, they're much more likely to develop a chronic condition afterwards. So there's a lot of reasons why we think older adults may respond differently to bacterial pneumonia infections relative to younger adults. Um, So the fact that we're just, you know, we have one hammer in our toolbox and we're just using it on uh, all of our cases, uh, 
you know, to me at least seems like that's that's a problem that biomedical research should try to address. Interesting. Okay, so then um, that's why why some research are exploring potential drug candidates targeting specifically older adults because they notice these differences in immune responses. Yeah, yeah. I think it's well known that age is probably one of the largest risk factors for lung infections, right? So I think this is a, a major area of research for sure. Thanks for sharing that, Kevin. Uh, I'm curious, what do you hope are some implications of your research? Yeah, I mean, I, I think any uh, biomedical researcher hopes to, you know, bring some drug to market, uh, you know, help do that in some small way, and ultimately benefit the care of older adults. Um, you know, as a first-year PhD student, I think that's pretty ambitious. Um, you know, I'm just hoping to contribute to, uh, you know, the pursuit of science in some way in my field, try to advance the uh, field forward in, in some small way. Um, but I, I think the ultimate goal is, and considering how much uh, groundwork has already been done in this field, um, you know, I, I think there is a reasonable shot at, um, you know, trying to actually improve the clinical care of older adults, right? Um, again, like lung infections is a major problem for um, the population of older adults, right? So I, I think uh, it's a, an area that desperately needs innovation, and uh, we're hoping to meet that need. Mm-hmm. And I definitely appreciate what you're saying about contributing to this field because I think science is done in mm-hmm. these small steps rather than these large, significant leaps. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I definitely appreciate uh, how you're mentioning that. You'd like to continue contributing and advancing uh, some of the groundwork that's already been laid. Yeah, absolutely. On the shoulders of giants, right? Yeah, that's right. We're going to take a short break here on 93.3 CFMU. Make sure you stay tuned because we're going to continue learning more about Kevin's research and, of course, what he enjoys doing outside of the lab. Stay tuned, folks. Claude and you, man, that's what I'll do. 
Thanks for tuning back to the Amalmac here on 93.3 CFMU. I'm your host, Severo OS, where every Thursday, 12 to 12.30, we interview a McMaster graduate student. And before the break, we were talking with first-year PhD student Kevin Zhao. Uh, Kevin, can you briefly describe your research for listeners that are just tuning in? Yeah, absolutely. I'm studying the intersection of immunology and aging, um, how changes in the immune system as we age contribute to uh, changes in our ability to defend against infections. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting, too, to kind of go into detail about some of your research aims and how you uh, aim to uh, address those aims with your methods. Mm-hmm. So thanks for describing that. But I also wanted to take a quick opportunity, seeing the fact that you're not only a PhD student, but an MD-PhD student. Uh, yeah. uh, so I was wondering, uh, between the two of us, maybe we could explain a little bit what the MD-PhD program is like at McMaster. For any folks that are listening and kind of on the fence about whether this is something they may want to pursue or if you've never even heard about the MD-PhD program. Yeah, absolutely. Because there's not that many of us. That's true, yeah. Um, so I get, I can uh, provide a brief overview. So the MD-PhD program here at McMaster, it's a seven-year program um, where you complete both medical school and graduate school uh, here at McMaster. And the seven years are uh, split up. Um, typically, the first year is your PhD year, and then you go and do a year of medicine, and then you come back and you complete three years that's remaining in your PhD, and then you return for the last two years of clerkship, because of course, McMaster is a three-year medical school. Um, so Kevin, if you if you wanted to describe a little bit about anything about the MD-PhD program, or maybe uh, if anyone is on the fence, what do you think are some factors individuals should look for if they want to pursue such a degree? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, if you're interested in research or interested in medicine, I, I really can't recommend the MD-PhD program at Mac enough. Um, I think we're really well supported. We have an excellent program director. Um, and we're, I think, a really interesting group of people, um, not to toot my own horn too much. But yeah, I, I think 
Um, we're a very small program. We're very tight knit. Uh, I think there's only a, a dozen to two dozen of us total. Um, and we span a, a whole variety of fields from uh, all the way from like engineering to like health policy type research. Um, so it's a really interesting group of people. And uh, I'm at least having a great time in this program. So, mm-hmm. you know, if my recommendation counts for anything. Um, it counts it for everything, Kevin. It counts for everything. <laughs> It's good to hear. Yeah, and I'm s- certain some of you folks may have heard, you know, the classic bench to bedside, mm-hmm. being able to bring um, findings to your patients. But it's true with with pursuing a, a dual degree program where you are really in both realms. You're able to go into a clinical environment and see what your patient exper- is experiencing, and develop research questions out of that. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if you're doing research in your own lab you can hopefully take those research questions and those findings and apply it to your own patient population. Absolutely. And I I think our program does a great job of fostering that sort of interdisciplinary mindset. Uh, Like throughout our PhD years, uh, we go into clinic to do horizontal electives and uh, we maintain that clinical connection a lot. And throughout our PhD years, I think most of us probably maintain some connection to our lab. And I I really think that uh, the environment here at McMaster is one that really fosters collaboration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would completely agree. And I'm happy that you gave a nod to horizontal electives because mm-hmm. those are certainly helpful in keeping tabs on the clinical environment yeah. because it can seem a bit scary to be away from the clinical environment for three years. Absolutely. And for me, I just want to highlight that I initially applied to the um, medical program and then applied for the MD-PhD program, um, I guess, because I missed the bench so much. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll be away from the bench or from the uh, clinic for four years, right? So I especially appreciate that horizontal electives sort of keep your uh, uh, connection with the clinical world intact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for anyone that's listening that is interested to learn more, of course, you can always go um, to our website that I can link in the podcast, or you can email either Kevin or I if you have any questions. I'm already putting you down, Kevin, for Absolutely. I'm happy to to mentor any of your listeners. Great. That's wonderful. Yeah. um, Feel free to reach out and ask any questions. and even if you have questions about other MD-PhD programs across Canada or even in the States where I think they're a little bit more common, yeah, yeah, feel free to definitely uh, do your research or hopefully one of us can guide you to the appropriate resource. Absolutely. Okay, just a minute and a half left in the program. But gosh, Kevin, before we leave, I mm-hmm. have to ask you, I understand you're a very busy student, <sighs> but what do you do for fun? Yeah, I mean, you got to make time for yourself, right? Um, you know, in my spare time, I, I really enjoy reading. Uh, I read a lot of science fiction. I'm a big fan. Back in my undergrad, I actually uh, tried my hand at writing some science fiction, but I was no good. Um, but, you know, I'll, I'll still enjoy reading. And I also enjoy playing D&D, uh, Dungeons & Dragons, with a group of other grad students uh, here at McMaster. Wow. What, is, what does that typically look like? Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, I feel like I'm just embodying a nerd stereotype at this point, but uh, Dungeons & Dragons is actually a lot of fun. It's a collaborative storytelling kind of medium. Um, you know, you, you all get the opportunity to role-play a character and, go through adventures and all that. Um, it's a great way to express yourself, I think, um, and really get away from work and do something that's totally different. Wow. I love that, Kevin. Yeah. Uh, storytelling games. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I have never tried my hand at uh, Dungeons & Dragons, but uh, I've seen a couple of walkthroughs for some story-based games, yeah. video games. So maybe, maybe <laughs> one day. Maybe one day. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Kevin, for coming on our show and talking about your really fascinating research. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you to all of you who are listening every Thursday, 12 to 12.30 here on the Alma Mac. Tune in next week because we will be back with another guest. But for now, stay tuned for Get Lit.
Hey folks, welcome to another episode of Get Lit. Today on the show, we speak with poet and author Amber McMillan. Hey folks, how are you? Welcome to the show. Today's guest, Amber McMillan, going to talk about her book, The Running Trees, which came out a little while back through Goose Lane, a collection of short stories. Good stuff. And as I say these words, no, as I say these words, I'm in front of a microphone, but as you hear them, if you are listening live, 1230 Thursdays, I am probably not around. I have gone to Prince Edward County to settle into a cottage at Sandbanks Provincial Park and 